Hello, my name is Scott Rogers. I'm a content specialist here at MDRT. Thank you for joining us for the first episode of the MDRT podcast. Today, we're going to start at the basics. How do you run your business? What type of people do you hire? What are the strategies you employ that make your practice succeed? You're going to be hearing from three MDRT members. They are Clay Gillespie. Clay Gillespie from Vancouver, Canada. Simon Gibson. Simon Gibson from Newmarket in England. And Greg Gagney. Greetings, this is Greg Gagney from New Hampshire, United States. MDRT member for, you, you want to skip that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. These guys are the best of the best. We caught up with them at the top of the table annual meeting in San Francisco to record them having a round table discussion. You'll hear them touch on issues like staffing, how they work with clients, and what they do to market their businesses. Clay gets us started by talking about the importance of giving your staff independence. So let's jump right in. We'll check back later. Enjoy. The one thing that I've learned over the years about staffing is you have to expect more from their staff than they expect from themselves. And 90% of the time they'll rise to the occasion. And if they don't rise to the occasion, you find out quickly it's the wrong place for them. And the idea behind staff is allow you to delegate to them. With the improper staff, you can't delegate. You can't uh, do all the things that you need to do. So you can't micromanage your staff. You've got to let them be part of the team and do what they're supposed to do. For me, Clay, staffing was something I had to learn the hard way. And what I mean by that is uh, many of us treat our staff as an expense. And I had to recognize and realize that my staff is probably the largest, most significant investment I can make in myself by surrounding myself with others that can help to lift me up by allowing me to delegate. And I remember back when I acquired my very first staff member, it was at a time that I actually couldn't even afford her. And she was part-time, and I actually had to go into debt. But once I made that move, she freed up my time so that I could start doing what I needed to do, which is see people and not uh, work on the busy work inside of the, the business itself. Yeah, Greg, I think that's a great point. The investment word is, is the key one. And I've even done it with clients of ours who've been debating how to grow their business. And they've told me they've got $25,000, $30,000, whatever to spare. And I tell them, don't think of it like that. Break it down into 12 payments with that sort of salary to a member of staff. And if it doesn't work after three months, your investment is only three times the monthly amount rather than worrying about the big number. How do you compensate and motivate your staff? Like, is it just a salary and be nice to them, or is there some kind of other kind of metric that you use to get them more involved in the success of the practice? We, we have salaries and we have a bonus structure, and we've related that either to profit or discretionary bonuses for going above and beyond. They all absolutely, without fail, get a salary. And uh, I think that's, that's the only place to start. And that includes the consultants, that includes the advisors. They start with a salary. That's what we do too, Clay. We use a salary system. Employees are motivated for different reasons. You know, the three of us, we're all entrepreneurs and, and we're really motivated by going out and getting new business and the hunt and, you know, chasing new clients. And our staff doesn't necessarily share those same sentiments as, as we do. So in my firm, everybody gets a, a base salary uh, commensurate with what they're doing within the firm. Then we have a discretionary bonus plan. And then in our firm, we have one other advisor besides me. And he, in addition to bonus and salary, derive some of his income from from his performance, from his production. How do you do it? I have a quarterly bonus system that's based upon the underlying profitability of the practice. There's other areas you motivate staff. We give them their birthday off. Um, we let them take a day off every year as long as it's in a charitable activity. I'm trying to bring them into the community and being part of the firm. 
How about when you're first trying to find a member of staff? How do you guys cope with that? There are a few challenges there, aren't there, when you first take on a new member of staff? What do you look for? I try to hire people that I can bring into the business a little bit, so they're usually one or two or maybe three years out of university where I know they've got the ability to stick with stuff because they got a university degree. They've been able to engage in that, communicate with people, and you're able to train them in what you need to do and to make sure that they don't have any bad habits. And so in my staffing, I try to have this lineage of more senior staff, junior staff, and further down staff because I hire people that actually do want to grow. I find I get a much better staff person. If I have the discussion with them, you may not stay here the whole time because you may hit a ceiling, but I'll find a place for you. And so then I have that lineage of staff, so the next person that comes along is in that process. I only expect my direct staff to stay three, five years, maybe seven years. How many staff members do you have? Me specifically in my practice, I have four. The firm, including advisors, is 52, so it matters how you want to deal with that issue because I have two roles. One role is my personal practice, the other role is the managing director of the firm. Corporate staff, um, there's nine people over there um, and their, their compensation is dramatically different than the people on the financial advisor because they have distinctly different roles because the clients of the corporate team are the advisors and the advisor staff and the clients of the advisors of course are our end clients. So. That's how our firm works. We did have issues with the corporate team not understanding who actually pays our bills, so we made all the corporate team having to sit in every quarter two meetings with advisors so they have an understanding of what we're actually do for a living. We've recently um, gone through a bit of a change in the business, having become part of a larger organization. So in the office where I'm based, there are around about 54 people, of which nine are advisors and the rest are support staff. The organization is bigger than that. Overall, it's 350 people. But if I stick with the, the local office, nine advisors supported by a total of, what, 45 people. Uh, and it's something that we've driven through the business for lots of years, that we want the advisor, the consultant, whatever you call them, the person who sat in front of the client, to really concentrate as far as possible on one thing. And that means that the administration and other work, uh, investment work, the receptionist, we don't want the receptionist having to do another job, we don't want the person who is the, the meter and greeter for the business, we don't want the PA to be doing something else, we, we want everybody to, to have their own role. And coming back to the, the reason for my question is that often we struggle with the skills for staff. If you're trying to employ someone a bit higher up the chain, because you can't afford to always bring them through from maybe two years, three years out of university. So we need to bring people in with a great attitude. You know, you, you want a great attitude and then you can train the skills. But sometimes you have to have the skills up front and that's where it becomes difficult. So, how about you, Greg? Both of you run shops that are much larger than mine. I'd call mine more of a boutique. Uh, there are five employees. And uh, back in the mid-90s when I hired my very first part-timer that I couldn't afford at the time, the decision was made that as I grew, any new employee that was going to be added to my business would be specializing in a certain area of their own account, unique ability and uh, that's what we've done for all five. So everybody has their own specialized role within the firm, but we all work collectively. And in the last 24 months, we've spent a lot of time working on setting up our office as a team, a real team approach, and I'm letting go more and more and allowing the staff to take more and more ownership of what it's like to run the organization itself. So they're becoming part of the culture of the firm, and that's been really, for me, a game changer. I think it's, you know, it's our job to make sure that culture is alive 
and make sure the staff is involved in our culture and not look at them as just an expense but more of a part of the entire team so they get the culture because once they get the culture they get a loyalty once they get a loyalty you get a better employee you get less turnover and various other things. Yeah, and the culture and the ethos of the firm is massive, isn't it? You've got to get them understanding that from the word go. So you've hired a staff member and they've been there a couple years and they turn out to be not the proper fit for the firm. You know, as they say, necessary endings. Have you guys had to deal with that situation? And, you know, have you made any mistakes in there? Yeah, I, I don't believe there'd be anybody uh, probably even listening to this and certainly not amongst us that's, that's never made a mistake when we've hired somebody. I'd like to think that the biggest mistakes we've made have come up much quicker than two to three years and, and, and you can deal with that much more readily if, if it's after you know, two or three weeks or even two or three months. What we have done over the years is that you have to make sure that those situations are managed and you can either manage the people out or you can manage them to a position where they can improve and, and actually you can turn it around. There are people who perhaps need taking in a different direction, maybe even being given a different role within the business. I've got a really good pal in the UK who took on someone, was really worried about what they were doing, really worried they weren't going to fit, worried about how he was going to get rid of them. And it turned out they wanted to do something else in the organisation, a relatively small business. And they became brilliant at that. And he just got them in the wrong, the wrong peg in the wrong hole. They, they weren't a bad person, it just hadn't fitted because he needed them for role A at the time and role B didn't exist. It turns out they were great for role B and he could bring someone in for role A. I think there's lots of ways of doing it, but yeah, you, I think you've got to fess up to your mistakes pretty quickly. I had a long-term employee that uh, turned out to actually become a real problem in the organization uh, from a control standpoint. And I didn't really realize this at the time, but once I started seeing how she was really controlling everybody's behavior, I hired a coach to help me with a behavior modification program for her, which I knew was going to result in one of two things. E either she was going to get back on board or she was going to leave the organization. She one day stood up in the middle of a staff meeting and threw her resignation on the desk because that's the type of person that she had become. At the time she actually quit because of the responsibilities that she had. I thought it was going to be a severe blow to the organization. It turned out to create one of the greatest opportunities the yeah. organization's ever had. So anybody out there that would be listening to this that is struggling with an employee-related matter and they're concerned about the necessary ending, as Clay said, it may make sense if your gut's telling you that this is where it's going to mm -hmm. get it over with sooner mm -hmm. than later because the opportunities will present themselves as soon as you do it. What have I seen at our firm which has been a problem is we don't want to deal with the situation and so whatever someone's been hired to do it's not actually going quite correctly and instead of dealing with that particular staff member they'll just hire a new staff member to try to get the work done when the best solution was to get rid of that and get the appropriate staff member. So it's, it's quite interesting. Yeah, we, we have an expression sweeping under the carpet, and that's one of the most dangerous things you can do. You, sure, because you, you can't avoid it. You know, firing people, for most people, is not a interesting or something you look forward to. No, it's not pleasant. So you, and, you, and you know this person, their lifestyle, and all that kind of stuff is driven by you, so it's a difficult decision, but you, typically it's better for everybody. Well, why don't we switch gears here a little bit and talk about something more uplifting than firing people? <laughs> well, you started it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you guys market? What do you do to get new clients? The very best thing that I've ever learned, and I don't know if I learned it from any one person or from perhaps the behavior of my father in business and seeing other people through MDRT and meetings and committees with our own national associations and so on, is making yourself referable. I think if you can make yourself referable, you have to do a lot less prospecting and a lot less asking for referrals. It's the way that you act. It's, it's getting loyal clients and getting clients who will in their own right become advocates of yours really without asking and I would say that's the biggest tip I can give. That You can't do that overnight clearly, that takes time and it takes a lot of effort 
and it's not about asking people who they know and so on and so forth, although I'm not saying that's not a good idea. Making yourself referable is the very best one. When I first started, I was told that there's two ways that we get paid in this business. One is if you like the products that I'm showing you, that you'd place your business with me. And number two is that you would then refer me to two to five people that you may know that could benefit from the work that I do. And that never worked well for me. In fact, uh, when it came to asking for referrals, I absolutely stunk at it. I was probably the worst referral getter uh, in the history of this business. And for most of us, our, our biggest problem in our business is getting in front of people. We have great messages to share, but we don't necessarily have a great way to get in front of people. So I had to figure out how I could get in front of people and get the fish to start chasing the boat. So I went into trying to build credibility, which is I started writing articles. And uh, lo and behold, they actually got printed. And then once those started getting printed, then a couple of organizations saw that I was getting uh, some press, so they started calling me. And one thing led to the next, and all of a sudden I was now getting quoted. I wasn't writing the articles, I was being quoted in the articles. And then I started doing seminars. And that's really been the way that has helped me to propel to a, a level of success that I never dreamt I'd have, which was by doing the seminar talks as well as by getting into the media. Media is a big part, but that takes a while to build into because you need some time and some credibility. The advice I was given, which till this day it's what I track, is specialize in one area, get good at what you do in that area, and see people in that area, and track the number of people that you see in that area. And just doing that leads to activities. So in my media work, I probably have 50 to 70 quotes in magazines um, a year. It's all about that topic. And the more you get to know about that topic, and I think it comes to your point where you make yourself referable. Why would somebody deal with me over somebody else? I think the mistake that we make, if you try to be all things to all people, then you've got to ask for referrals because there's no other way that you're going to generate. So when somebody refers you, so Greg refers you to me, um, what's the, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to Google you. Yeah, sure. Right? Th things have changed. Yeah, sure. So... It used to be you get a referral and they'd come directly to you. Now it's uh, Google. So your whole website, your whole campaign has to be driven differently than it did 15, 20 years ago. It's, it's different. And, and, and I suffered and benefited from that. Clearly, if it's Google Images, then that's not so good. But uh, on a serious point, I think I've got, we've got three ways. I know, that, that was pretty serious. We've got, we've got, <laughs> we've got three, three, three ways that, uh, that we market, and, and they take in the old and the new, really. I mean, the first one which refers to what you've just said, is LinkedIn. I think you know in particular, I use LinkedIn a lot. I actually use LinkedIn every day, and it is a fantastic system of both being referable and getting referrals. And you know that's probably the topic of another podcast at some point. The second one is my business card, and my business card doesn't have loads of lists of my achievements and my exam results and my qualifications. Under my name, it just says I have the best job in the world. And that's one of my best marketing tools, because if I'm meeting someone at a networking event, I don't go in and say I'm a financial advisor or a consultant or even a wealth manager. I'll certainly talk about it. I'm very, very proud of what I do. I'm a professional. I consider that. I hand them that card. It just starts a conversation. Sometimes it's a questioning conversation. How can you be having the best job in the world compared to a brain surgeon or a teacher or whatever? I, I, can, I can answer that. But it starts a conversation. And the third one is something I've only been doing for a relatively short while. And I suppose this goes back quite a long way. I've been doing it about 18 months, and in UK terms, we were spending about £500, I suppose $750, something like that, on adverts. And we'll keep doing that and the drip, drip, drip effect of getting people coming in. And I went to our marketing guys and said, look, I want to take £500, and I'm going to turn that into lots of smaller, really one-off, harder-hitting, prospecting referral ideas. And if I, if I met Clay and I discovered that Clay likes hockey, I know you're a hockey fan, I go out, I go away from the meeting, I think, well, I want to 
keep in touch with Clay. He and I have chatted. He's enjoyed talking about his hockey. I've enjoyed talking about what, whatever I've discussed with him. And I go to either a bookstore if I'm walking out and about, or go to Amazon if it's late at night. And within a day, I've got for 20 or 25 pounds, so a decent amount of money, the latest book I can find on the topic that we've been discussing. I write a little note in it and I send it to him. And it doesn't say, I want your business. It doesn't say, you know, please ring me next Wednesday. Obviously, with anything, you've got to follow up. You've got to make sure that you're doing that. But that's much more likely and is already having fantastic benefits to get Clay, who I met, to come back to me than have had the conversation with Clay and hope he one day sees my advert, which may or may not be in a paper that goes in front of his, uh, of his desk. I think something you said, too, about specialization is really key because it prevents us from reinventing uh, the wheel. If we're laser-focused and working in a kind of a niche market in our specialty, it's much easier to get referred to other people that are experiencing the same problems if we're working like, uh, for me, I work mostly with re retirees and they're all facing the same issues. So if we're working in that marketplace and I'm not doing college planning one day and a 401k or retirement plan the next day and I'm working on distribution planning, they know that I'm the guy they should come talk to if they want to know how to take assets and spend them down and decumulate them over the rest of their lives. So I thought that point that you made about specialization was really key, Clay. A big part of any success I may have is the specialization. And then when you drive that through your marketing, when you drive it through your staffing, when you drive it through your compensation or your model, when you drive it through everything, it makes the decisions much easier for everything else. It's tough to advertise or it's tough to do anything when you're trying to say everything. But if you only got three or four points to say, it makes LinkedIn easier, it makes blogs easier, it makes absolutely everything easier. My staff, when somebody comes in, they know exactly what we're going to do. The process is just exactly, like everything's exactly the same. Clients are, you know, they're pretty close to being the same. You know, you change the numbers a little bit, but they're the same. Any new change in legislation, I'm going to know about it and it's going to fit in because I only have to know about that topic. Right? If I try to keep on top of absolutely everything, people come in, they'll know that you don't know or you don't do it every day. And then you've got to spend the time to develop whatever that plan is. You've got to attend the, the strategies. You've got, that's just a waste of time. So let me play devil's advocate just for a second because you're clearly very, very successful, both of you, with the specialization. And, and probably personally I specialize, but within my business we do everything. So how do you, do you collaborate with other people if you come across a client who really needs something that you don't specialize in, or do those people have to go off in the wind and find their own, uh, their own advisor? Yeah, for our firm it's quite easy because I do specialize, but that's not what our firm specializes in. Okay. So if somebody comes in who's not in my specialty, I'll just meet with them the first time because they referred to me and I'm saying, well, it's not what I deal with. This person in our firm does a much better job at this because that's what they do. So it builds other people's business. Somebody comes in and talks about disability insurance. I'm going, that's the stuff you get when you're hurt, right? So it's not an area that I'm going to deal with or in various areas that I, I just don't want to touch because I, I, I won't be good at it. So yeah, you want to collaborate. You want to specialize um, in areas. You want to have people around you that you can refer to um, in this process. And where both of you have larger shops, you can probably do a lot of that internally. And for me, because I'm a smaller sure. shop, uh, it doesn't work the same way. So I ultimately will uh, usually end up just referring those out. And, and I don't even do that on a revenue sharing basis. Um, uh, if, if, they're, if they're going away from my firm, it's because they, they want something that I really can't give them anyway. So I don't even want to keep the attachment uh, to, the, to the case so that I can spend my time focused on 
my, my area of expertise. So uh, we've all spoken about revenue or remuneration. Uh, we talked about with the staffing, how they're remunerated. What about how we're remunerated these days? Because that's another hot topic at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, our industry, I think all across the world, is becoming much more transparent. Um, it's not as much in the insurance world yet, but I believe that's coming. On the wealth management side, um, embedded commissions are a problem. Um, and, and so, I mean, I think five, six years ago, I switched to a fee-based model. Uh, and the reason behind the fee-based model wasn't because I was trying to be holier than thou. I found it a very good marketing exercise. And so it's coming. So you want to be ahead of the curve. You want to have the process in place. You want to make sure it's just it's what you do rather than reacting to it. Start becoming proactive to it. And uh, then all these changes are no big deal to your model. I made the change not out of necessity. I made the change, uh, the, the, the ripple effect, the upshot was from a marketability standpoint, uh, it became crystal clear that uh, setting my business up on a recurring revenue model uh, was uh, easier for attract, attracting uh, potential new clients. What year did you do that, Greg? Uh, 1998. Wow, yeah. So, um, the reason I really did it, at the time I did it, uh, was because I, I was really suffering and struggling with the peaks and valleys of, of being in a transaction-based business, and I wanted to figure out a way to get a recurring revenue stream. And uh, I just happen to choose that as the path to, to do it. Uh, there's a variety of ways that anybody out there can, can get recurring revenue, whether it be through health insurance or, or long-term care or what have you. But I chose investment management. Um, and I know uh, for you, Simon, uh, it's not something that you could actually just choose because you felt like choosing it. it. It's something out of necessity that you're being forced down that path. So maybe you can shed some perspective on that. Yeah, sure. It is now in the UK. Uh, it, it's fair to say that we did choose before, before it came. Uh, we char we've charged fees since the 1st of June 2000, a very, very easy to remember date. Uh, and. Uh, we did that for all the reasons that, that you said. Uh, we run a business. I, I can choose to have pro bono clients if I want to. I can choose to help a particular client with a particular situation and not charge them for all of my time. But I want to be paid for what I do. I, I, I'm a professional uh, and, I, and I value that. But you're absolutely right, Greg. There's been a sea change coming in the UK and it's now here. So since the 1st of January 2013, uh, I won't bore you with all the uh, terminology, but we've had a law in place that says you now work on a fee basis. You have to discuss what is called customer agreed remuneration. So we cannot go into something and say, uh, we'll earn X out of it, but you, know, you don't need to know that. We, we have to agree what we're going to do, and we have to agree it up front. Now that works fantastically well in a fee-based situation. And again, you're ahead of the curve, and I think all three of us in that respect have done that. And whether that's remuneration, which I suppose is the obvious one linked to assets, which we've spoken about, and a percentage of assets, or whether it's an hourly rate, which is not my preferred choice, but, it, but you sometimes have to do that if you're going into a particular piece of work, or a fixed fee, and fixed fees work really well for us. We, we know, coming back to your point about process, Clay, which is a really good one, you can provide a bespoke service if in the background you've got a commoditization of your services. If I've got lots of boxes under the desk that I can bring out the right ones for the client, then I know what box A costs, what box B costs. They don't need C and they need D. That, that's the cost. That's what they're going to get. It doesn't make the service any, any less. We, we know how long it takes. We know what's profitable. We, we went through a, an amazing profitability exercise in the business. And we, uh, we, we have an expression, we mothballed some clients, which meant that we stopped providing them with services, but we didn't sack them. 
We said, if you want to come back to us at some point in the future when, when we can next help, you now know that we charge fees. We don't need to charge you a fee on an ongoing basis because we're not going to do anything for you until you next come back to us. When you do, we'll have a conversation at our expense. It's never free. And at that point, you can decide that you do want to work with us in this new environment or that you need to go somewhere else. And that left a whole group of clients on the side. Many of them took up uh, our offer. Uh, and slowly but surely, some of those have gone by the wayside and some of them have come back to us and, and taken on full fee-based services. And I, I wouldn't be without it. For, for me, the change in the UK has been a very positive one because our business was ready for it. And I think uh, we're all talking about it. We all know different territories other than our own where it's coming. The loss of indemnity commissions and so on and so forth is, is definitely heading the way of a lot of countries that haven't suffered it yet. And I think people have got to uh, wake up and, and smell the coffee. You got, I know you do, but you charge for your financial planning work, Greg? Or how does that work for you? Yes, and it depends. It's all going through compliance. So uh, what, it, what happens is if they just need financial planning with no investment management, so it's almost, as uh, Simon was talking about, you know, box A, box B, box C, then I will charge them a fixed fee and to execute the project. If they uh, want to use us for investment management with the planning, then what I typically do, and you don't, people don't have to do this, it's just my choice, I waive the planning fee because I'm going to grab it on the asset management fee over the long term. But that's at my discretion. Sometimes they'll hire me initially as just to do planning, but as we start planning they decide they want me to be the investment advisor. So in that case what I might do is waive a portion of the planning fee. The, the takeaway is that we have flexibility mm. and we can really control our businesses like business owners and make these decisions for our clients or for ourselves but while helping our clients. The main reason I asked that because that was one of the things probably 15 years ago I changed that turned out to be one of the best exercises I ever did which was starting to plan for all, make people charge, charge them for all the plans that are being done and it wasn't a huge amount of money and what I found was when people pay for something, they see value in it. And so when they paid for it, they went and implemented it. And I, and I never rebate the fee. I never give it back to them. The, my, my marketing with them is my job is to put a plan together that you're allowed to market, sorry, allowed to market anywhere. You could take it as my, I use a doctor analogy. I'll write the prescription and you can implement it wherever you want. You can choose to implement it with me, but that's a separate discussion later. And so what that's done is it's taken all the, he's trying to sell me something out of the process. I do the plan with them. 90% of the time they'll implement and they'll do whatever I said in the plan because they paid for it. So that's been one of the more powerful marketing things that I've ever done. And I keep moving the fee up a little bit to make sure it's painful enough that they understand, but not enough that I'm trying to make money on it. It's really a marketing thing. Now, you have an unintended consequence that happened that I know about from talking to you offline, yeah. uh, about how you have people pay you a fee uh, annually, and I, I think you, uh, you, you say it differently than this, but it's almost like a paid inventory. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I find that fascinating. When I do this planning work, because um, I, I, I too uh, work in the distribution phase and they'll, they'll come to me about five years from retirement and they may be in some type of pension plan and they're not going to retire for three, four years and there's nothing for me to do per se other than the original plan and then I just, to me, they're inventory in, in my thing so I do the plan, I see them every year after that to the day they come up and I just, they're just inventory to me, uh, assets going further.
And so that's that's just the nature of the beast and the retirement plan. Sorry, I, I think that's fascinating, actually, and and uh, it really pains me to say this. Greg, you'll know this uh, only too well, but but Clay Gillespie has just given a killer line for people who are listening to, to this about fees, really, because he said when people pay for something, they value it, and that's why we never do a free meeting. And I and I hammer that into the minds of of our staff, of our team, from the moment they join us, that we are professionals, that we charge fees, we are very, very happy to allow clients to have some time at our expense. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong, they don't have to come and pay me £500 just to come and sit in a room and then decide they don't like me, which you know, happens from time to time. That they have to decide for themselves and we want to do that, we want them to do that in, in an environment where we can decide as well. So if we're not charging, we're, we make it clear that we charge, they get to see our terms of business, our client agreements, whatever you call it beforehand. And, and I think that's really important, actually, that, that that value is there. And it's, again, another reason, forgive me, I, you both use the word industry. I know that's used by a lot of people. We, uh, I don't allow the staff in our offices to use the term industry. It's a profession. Because we don't do things in an industrial way. We do them in a professional way. And people who are in industry tend to get their hands dirty. And let's be honest about this, we don't get our hands dirty. So we stick with being professional. Yeah, one of the... I heard a talk years and years ago that has stuck with me uh, and, and why I separate the engagement of the financial plan from the implementation of the plan. If people feel boxed in, it's harder for them to make a decision. So it, it, the phrase was, the more chance you give a client to say no, the greater chance they're going to say yes. As soon as a client doesn't see a clear choice, or an option, if they only see the one choice and not an option, they get scared. So if they get all, they can see that the engagement ends and there's no issue. Then the first part is easy to do and then they can choose to do the second one. You're taking the pressure out of it. You're taking any sales out of it and you're turning it in just part of the process is they can get a plan and the way they go in this process. So I found that very powerful. Give them the chance to say no and they say yes more often. Can I change topic slightly again? Sure. This is a, a slightly loaded question, but uh, what do you two guys do about fact-finding? How, how do you uh, deal with that with prospective clients when you're first meeting well, people? Yeah, I don't do it myself. So I actually have what I call a paraplanner, which is just one of the staff members, and uh, they do the first part of the fact-find, which is the gathering of all the information. And that has been really instrumental for uh, weeding out yellow lights you know, yes, like when you're driving yes, down the road, yeah. a, a yellow light usually goes red, not green. Mm -hmm. And if they don't want to give us the documents that I'm looking for up front, I take it as to mean as that they're not serious, that they're just kind of tire kicking, they're just kind of exploring. And frankly, I just don't have the time anymore to, to talk with folks that don't really want an action plan. So assuming they bring all the data in, uh, staff gathers all of the information, and then uh, I get a chance to look through the file and then we schedule them in for one hour, what we call free consultation. It's at our cost, which means that basically I'm paying for it, but that's for the first hour. So, but uh, yeah, that's been, it's been great doing it that way. So it allows me to spend five minutes with the uh, soft questions and then 55 minutes going over the issues that they actually face. I already know the game plan. I know my angle of attack. I know the issues they face. Instead of doing it the way most of us have been trained, which is to spend 55 minutes getting the information and then five minutes trying to solve the problems. It's a very stressful way to do business. And once they understand my model, because we explain it to them up front, they appreciate it. What, what I do in the first meeting 
is I have people discuss what their three top financial objectives are in the first meeting. And then I go through the process and find out what they're doing. And at that point is when I set the financial planning fee and I say, here's a questionnaire or now we can email it to you and you can just fill it out and send it back. And as soon as we get that questionnaire back, we'll call and book a meeting 10 working days out to, just to put the process in their mind. And uh, I always joke, I get better answers when I'm not in the room. And so I send the questionnaire with them. They fill this thing out. They send it back. Just because they ask it, they tell me I'm on the questionnaire. And they're not worried about the question because I'm not there, so they don't feel intimidated. So when I get the questionnaire back, it's all done. And the way I do the financial planning work that goes on it. So I think it's a waste of time asking factual details. Um, if I spend time with the clients, it's going to be on the emotional side and on the objective side. Um, and then eventually we'll get to the implementation stage, but that's how I tend to do it. Uh, we're, we're very similar. We haven't filled out a fact find in our office for eight or ten years. They, they go out to a client, to a prospect, uh, prior to a meeting. So we, we, meeting. we make the meeting, prior to the first meeting, we make the meeting, we send them the form. We ask them to send it back in advance of the meeting if they, if they have time. Sometimes the meetings are, are perhaps too soon, but usually, like you, they're 10, 14 days out. That gives them time. And we make it clear we don't expect necessarily every box to be ticked to, to give them that little bit of a, of a let off. But we tell them how long we think it'll take them to do. We suggest they do it on a Friday night at the kitchen table with the bank statements and the national insurance numbers and whatever they need around them. And many people send it back in. Pretty much the rest bring it with them to the first meeting, which is also okay because I can have a quick glance at it while they're answering a, a different question if I really need to. But I make a point of having it by the side of me and pretty much not looking at it for the entire meeting because I've either seen it beforehand or I'm getting a feel for them, exactly as you say with the emotional side. Very, very few won't complete it. And just as you say, Greg, there is a bit of a, a yellow light uh, flashing if, if they don't. The discussion with the client is you're just going through the areas that seem to be of most interest to them. And so you, you're just having those kind of open-ended questions um, and you just give them a chance to talk and you're just kind of feeling out what their hot buttons are so you make sure you solve those particular problems inside there. So every time I do that first meeting, it is slightly different. I always start that meeting off to the same because I want them to know how long they're staying. So I said, you know, I have an agenda, but what's more important to me, this is actually your meeting. So over the next 45 minutes, what would had to have happened in this meeting for you to think it was successful? And right there, they tell me, well, I'm worried about this, this, and this. And that's the gauge of where I ask my next questions based upon what was important to them. So sorry to butt in, but would you stop them after 45 minutes if you've got a meeting that you think is going well? Are you just are you really harsh on that? Are you really firm on that? Uh, typically, I'm, my first meetings are an hour. Um, yeah. Very rarely are they longer. I mean, I'm a very structured person um, in, in, in the process. So I actually haven't run across too many times. Um, that may just lead to another meeting at a quicker date. It's a good idea with, to, to give them a time frame mm, I agree. so that they, they mm. kind of have a sense of a, at least a time limit on the agenda. Mm. One of the things I do in most of my meetings um, is ask uh, them to look forward but then backwards. And the, it's similar to what Clay's saying. I'd say fast forward out now three years, look back with me. What had to have happened over the last three years that you can feel that you made significant process uh, progress rather uh, in your decision to choose me as your financial steward mm. and then they tell me what what had to have happened mm. and there's the roadmap for what we need to do mm. what we need to do mm. yeah. I, I suppose uh, as you say it does depend how the meeting goes but uh, 
most people are bothered when they come to talk to us about uh, either living too long or dying too soon. It's an old MDRT mantra. I'm afraid I can't remember who I first heard it from. I've heard it at many a meeting and I use it every week. Every week of my working life since I heard it, I've used it to talk to clients and invariably mention it to couples and some of them are worried about living too long and others are worried about dying too soon. So it's a, it's a good topic. I suppose my, my question that gets the most remarkable feedback and response, especially with people who are meeting for the first time, is what do you want to happen when you die? Because it is something that everybody, they may not want to think about it, they may not have got their affairs in order, that may even be why they're with us. Uh, I ask them if they're 25 or 95, because everybody will have an answer. And the key to that one is to then be quiet, just to shut up and wait until they've finished telling you, because that can go on for quite a lot of time when they really spill out, well, here's financially what I want to happen when I die. And, and quick quick answers uh, and quick further questions. Why is that? This is a standard one, isn't it, that we probably all use. But the other one is, uh, is that what's going to happen? I start off with a statement saying that, uh, you know, dying in our, at least in our country, dying in the United States is a lot less expensive than becoming disabled along the way. Mm. You know, that's a financial fact. Mm. And I go on to say that, you know, most people that I talk to have some form of a death plan, which is what happens with their stuff if, if they die. But what happens if they don't die? And what happens if they get sick? And what happens if they need long-term care? What is your strategy to cover that you know, possibility? And that always opens up a very heartfelt discussion because most estate planners uh, and most of the lawyers, they haven't addressed that issue at all. And that's the biggest financial threat that most of the folks that at least I work with face. You know, when I listen to you, what I've and also Simon, there's certain phraseologies that we use in describing situations. And and I've, over the years, you use it in one meeting and then you like it so much you adjust it and then it becomes part of your repertoire. And and uh, one of the meetings that I use in the first meeting is, uh, dear Mr. and Mrs. Client, the difference between you and I is you retire once and I've helped people retire I help people retire every day, so I've seen the good, the bad, both emotionally and financially on how to retire, because you're trying to just build your credibility. On the, and then when I get into the implementation side, and this is the one that is, gets me so much mileage, I see over the next 10 years, yes, yeah, so over a 10-year period, this is what our relationship's gonna be like based on financial terms. You're gonna love me twice, hate me twice, be indifferent to me six times. And I get this kind of look, what do you mean by that? Well, two times out of 10, the market's gonna go up dramatically. Those are the years you love me. Two times out of 10, it's gonna go down dramatically. Those are the years you hate me. Six of the 10 times, it's gonna be an average rate of return. You go, eh, Clay did okay. And we can't do anything about those returns. And I'm pretty good at telling you what's gonna happen. I'm just bad at telling you the order. So we have to design our strategy to deal with those eventual outcomes. And so what I, clients will come in, do I hate you, love you this year? And I'm like, no, mild dislike. Like it's really part, and then you build that, and I built that into my strategy that, oh, so when you hate me, this is what you do. So I keep using the same phraseology that when the market goes down, they remembered, oh yeah, this was supposed to happen, and this is what we're going to do. So when they come in, this is what we're gonna do, and they say, okay, away we go. So these various phraseologies that you use to describe what you do in a language that's not financial, um, I find very beneficial. And I, I add to that line oftentimes that, uh, you know, you're hiring me not necessarily to make you rich, but you're hi hiring me to prevent you from ever becoming poor. Mm. I, I use a very simple, uh, I'm here to help you do what you should do. 
uh, and, and I make it clear that I understand it's their money, it's always their money, it, will, it is today, it will be in the future, uh, but they've come to me for an opinion and I'm going to give them an opinion and, and they are entitled to ignore that. They're entitled to choose to take that opinion uh, and sometimes we'll go you know, somewhere between the two and, and that's fine as well. It's their money. Uh, nevertheless, I, I think people who come to any of us and, and, and ask us have, have got to be prepared to hear the answer. Yeah, the other one I use all the time is, I don't want you to run out of money because I don't want you to move in in my basement because we'd fight over the TV and you get the laughs from that. And it's 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 putting humor into some of the discussions where it's they understand big picture what you're going to do and why you're doing it, um, rather than getting into all the details because they're not going to remember the details anyways but they remember that love me hate me phrase forever because it just seems so strange to say so having certain things that described what you do simply i would recommend that people do to find some way to say it over and over again in a non-financial way do you find uh because certainly we do uh, clients are getting a bit more savvy with things like asset allocation and thinking about what's happening with markets there's more and more information it's easier to get to the, the permanent information flow we've all got something in our pockets that's called a phone that will actually connect us to stock price pretty much anywhere in the world in three seconds flat. What's happened, I believe, is I've got better at the education process rather than the sales process. So in whatever, you know, I send out a quarterly review in the meetings, it's love me, hate me twice, say, you know, what's, you know, the order. You keep the messaging strong all along the way, then it, it keeps those questions from coming near as much. So I think I've just got better at educating them ahead of time in what could happen rather than explaining the details of the currency and all those kind of things. Plus the technology and the information that's out there, Simon, is, is such an oxymoron to begin with because yeah. uh, we all know that, and, and so do the clients, they, they know this, that investing and planning is a long-term commitment. It is not an overnight uh, uh, event, yet all of the periodicals, the magazines, the news shows, and they're talking about tweaking portfolios on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis. And if, if our clients follow that advice, they're going to drive their portfolios and their finances into the ground anyway. Uh, so what I tell my clients to do is basically shut off that stuff. All, all it is is an, an annuity to the periodical. Well, we call it noise. Uh, yeah, we, noise. We, we say yeah, there's too much noise well. and, and you need yeah. to cut some of that out. Yeah, so. you have to clear through that. Yeah. Well, one of, one of the phrases that I use in respect to this is, you know, when you read the regular, when I'm talking to a client, you listen to the regular news and you always take it with a grain of salt because it's got some bias attached to it. And as soon as you get to the business news, all of a sudden you think it's pure in some way. Well, it's exactly the same as the regular news is. And it, it does have a bias, and the same as the news, it's to sell the newspapers. So unless there's something to talk about, you're not going to read it. And so you just got to remember what, why, why the news is in existence and understand that. Mm. We, we do write a, a, a monthly market commentary. Try to do me? For clients. And, yeah. uh, well, yeah, I, I know you don't work a couple of months, uh, <laughs> quarter, so that's presumably why you do quarterly. But, uh, that, the same thing that you said, and I, and I would I would add to that, that that communication is more important when things are bad than it is when things are good. We discovered that in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. We didn't lose a single client in that whole period, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. We do a lot of investment business, and we brought in clients who came to us because they were saying things like, well, my advisor's pulled the duvet over their head, and they want to be woken up when it's over, or I can't get them to respond to a phone call, an email, or a letter, and. 
we were all in the same boat, weren't we? I'm not sure any, any of us were spotted that perfectly. Maybe maybe you two did, but most of us you didn't entirely see the certainly the the depth and veracity of the of the problems. And that was a hate me year. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the speed sure. of the decline. Absolutely, and and we kept communicating. So we we had the monthly communications. We kept that up and running. Uh, we started doing weekly emails if if that was necessary. It was only only probably for five or six weeks, and we put on a really short notice investment uh, briefing for our clients, where we gave them two and a half weeks notice, and we never had more people attend anything ever than that one because it we just played to their fears, uh, and we didn't have answers, but we said, look, we've always told you we'll give you our opinion. Here's what we think. Here's why we think you should do what you're doing. Uh, pretty much nobody changed anything. We had uh, famously one guy decided pretty much in the depths of, uh, of the bottom of it to go to cash, stayed with us, and we said, we really don't think you should do this. And about three weeks later, went back in, and he was 4% off for that one decision. And the people who stayed there over that three-week period, were, were they were all 4% better off. And, and he's recognized ever since, and, and he is a, a now an advocate for, well, do what these guys say. They won't always be right, but on basis of what I've experienced, it's better that you take their advice than you try and make your own decisions. One, one of the things that you have to be cautious of, though, I believe in this, is you can't start your marketing efforts or your communication after something's gone bad. It has to be part of your marketing process. So if you wait until a bad event to communicate with your clients, it's not near as powerful as if it's just the run-of-the-mill messaging that you just just a different message coming at this time because what's going on rather than the world is on fire you know I understand so you, you it it's our job to calm clients down and have them think as mostly rationally as they can about this so your all your positioning and marketing has to happen I always say to clients you want to make decisions from a position of strength so you want to know what your decision is going to be before the event happens in this in this area and it's counterintuitive to you because when the market's going up and we're doing rebalancing and we're making changes you don't really want to do it because the market is going up but you're comfortable doing it when the market goes down humans have a tendency to want to do something when they feel uncomfortable and that would be the inappropriate time to make a decision you had to have made whatever decision before the market was up when the market was up so always make your decisions from a position of strength and not a position of weakness and that's just you know, the constant messaging of, of these kind of ideas. Um. I think the ongoing communication, uh, we, we've been talking about investments the last few minutes. It's the same with, with anything, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you, you talked about regulation changes or law changing. People are worried about taxation. Uh, people are worried about uh, understanding the rules in different countries about disability and healthcare and so on and so forth. And uh, whether it's a regular newsletter or a regular opportunity, uh, in the UK now, you can only charge an annual fee if you see somebody every year. now. I don't think that's a surprise, I don't think that's a bad thing. That's something that, that we've always done. Part of our remuneration is, and part of our conversation when we see a, a prospective client is we make some promises, we expect you to make some promises. One of those is you will come and see us at least once a year. If you want to see us every quarter, that's a different proposition, you'll pay more for it, we'll agree what the remuneration is for that. We will not work on a transactional basis with more than a tiny handful of people. We want relationships with people and that requires an annual meeting. Sometimes that annual meeting, there won't be a great deal to say. Other times, you know, we need to book three hours out of the diary. Sure. So you, you were talking about, a, I call it visibility mm. with, with your clients. I mean, what, what, what are you doing for your clients other than the newsletter to, to keep uh, top of mind with them? Okay, so uh, the, the, uh, we have several different uh, printed or email uh, versions. The monthly 
one. We have ad hoc uh, on, on topics, so maybe a, the topic of pensions or, or uh, we deal with some corporate clients, so topics of employee benefits. You have a website? We have a website. Do you blog and stuff too? Uh, we're just doing blogging now. We're just starting that. We've been using LinkedIn in a, in a sort of quasi-blog way for quite some time, and I suppose that's leading into a more formal blogging. But uh, I, I, I use LinkedIn, and many of our consultants use LinkedIn. I, I use it every day. Many of them use it several days a week. And we're very happy for clients to be linked to us. Not every client wants to do that, and I know in different jurisdictions, actually, that's not even possible to do. But I am prepared to put on there my thoughts of the day and link to something from Bloomberg or the Financial Times or BBC News and say, well, here's the news about the Bank of England not changing interest rates for five and a half years, and here's what we've been telling you for a while, and here's why we don't think it'll change for another six, nine months or so. Uh, the, the different topics of the day are often a subject that people are interested in. Uh, we also have to make sure that we're dealing with the things that we don't know about, so the things that are coming up in their lives, and that's more difficult, and I guess that's part of where your question comes from. By simply getting something into an email inbox once a month, that is what we call a touch with a client, and we touch all of our clients once a month. It might not be on the topic that they are worried about, and we know some of them will delete that email about the markets 11 months out of 12. The month they don't, they're either worried about the markets or they're worried about something else, and it's reminded them that we exist and we've got a meeting coming up and, and they make the phone call. So uh, we, we do a bit of advertising, a bit of marketing, uh, but mainly it is just the regularity of some sort of communication and, and email is almost perfect for that. Uh, the one thing I would say, I know Clay wants, wants to uh, jump in on this, but the, 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 the one thing I would say is that w we've also had to remind ourselves and myself included within the business not to ignore uh, the value of the voice and we make phone calls more often perhaps than we did three years ago because we recognized that we'd got so into the whole email thing and how easy it was and the great response we got from it that actually there were a number of clients or circumstances that really required pick up the phone and make a call. Um, in, in regards to the touches, I'll use that word because that is what it is, is we have a newsletter which is planning based because it's, it's written by our advisors and it gets emailed out and or it's paper copy. Um, as a side, I, if I want a client to do something, I actually send them to it by mail because they're going to read it. Email is always touch and go because everybody, it's so more cost effective to send by email. Nobody sends anything by mail anymore. Um, so we have a quarterly newsletter. Uh, I meant, yeah, quarterly newsletter. And then I have a quarterly investment uh, review that I send out. We have a monthly blog. And then I'll send out various ad hoc topics as things change in the in the area and the last thing that I do is when their quarterly report goes out with their performance I put a handwritten note on it and say hey, I hope you had a good summer and all those kind of things and when I tell a client I say the reason I put the note on there is because I was looking through the statement which I do every quarter specifically to make sure your account is still where it should be so I'm just putting a note on there see how things are going and it's an, probably the most powerful marketing thing I do by putting a handwritten note on their quarterly reports. Well they know that you've looked at it. Absolutely. And, and I have, and that's why I do it, so they know I looked at it. Yeah. And, and so it's just part of the, because clients say, do you look at my account every day? And I'm going, no, but I should. Right? And, and they look at me and say, well, what's that mean? Well, I look at your asset allocation quarterly. I, it's managed monthly by um, reports if you're offside. Um, but nothing, human touch and looking at it, I'll spot things that our computer programs can never touch. But I know the investments I use, so if something goes south, 
I just run a list of everybody who's got that investment. So uh, you let them know how they're managing the account. They don't really care about the investments as much as if they know what you're doing to uh, take care of them. I think that's a great point because I've been asked that as well. Do you look at my investments every day? And I have a very slightly different answer, which is I don't look at your investments every day, but I look at someone's investments every day. And a lot of them are very similar to yours. And we make the point that you know, if a fund manager gets hit by a truck, we do know that and we know who owns those yeah. funds so we can react. Uh, if there's a problem with Russia and we've got Russia funds, then we know there's a, a bigger issue regardless of who the manager is. And separate to that, if we've seen an asset allocation change significantly because of market movements, we know everybody who's in that asset allocation. So effectively, yes, we don't look at your personal portfolio every day. We're doing something every day that's very similar to what we do for you, and that makes sure that you're getting the same treatment as everybody else. Do you use Facebook too? Not for work, no. And, and if you've ever seen my Facebook page, you, you'd know. Uh, it's uh, no. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a great believer in social media. Uh, I really am. I think uh, we, we've, we're still scratching the surface with where that's going to go and the benefits that we can all get from it and clients can get from it. I would say that for me, Facebook is very, very personal, and LinkedIn is very, very professional, and that's a, an absolute uh, uh, demarcation that, that we've made in our business for some time. I, I use Facebook, and I don't put anything business uh, related on the Facebook, but my clients friend me on Facebook uh -huh. and they care more about what's going on with my kids than sure. they care about anything else. Sure. Which that has actually had a really great uh, benefit in, in the business itself by not talking business but uh, exposing a little bit of my life to these people. Um, I use LinkedIn like not quite to the extent that you do but I'm on there. Um, I do newsletters every other month and the other thing that I do that per perhaps you both do and just didn't mention but I also do a video every quarter. Uh, uh, Clay talked about doing a, a like a market update that you issue a brief quarterly. I actually do a video, and that has garnered great traction for my clients because they get to have a meeting with me 24/7 on their own terms. And really, it's not so much what we say; it's that they can see us saying it. Mm. You, you've got an advantage. Clay and I have faces for radio, whereas uh, you know you're a good-looking guy, Clay. Well, you can get you can get away with you can get away with video. So. Have you and will you fire clients? Yes. Yes to both. And why? Okay. Uh, I, have a, I have something that I introduced to all staff in the first week or so that they work with. It's called the Client Retention Grid. And this is a, a grid that shows uh, uh, loyal clients in the top right-hand corner with advocates sort of in stellar, uh, even further right than those, which show where we're giving great outcomes and, and great process along the way. And sometimes we drop one of those things, that that's down to us. And a client will fall down there and they'll go from being a, a secure client to a searching client to a lost client. And so sometimes clients will, will suffer that. Very rarely it happens, sometimes that's where it goes. Sometimes we move people down that line because their demands for outcomes or their demands for service are simply too great for what we can do, either because of affordability or because they're unreasonable. Uh, I remember uh, that the last significant client that, that we fired uh, came to us with a copy of a monthly magazine with all of the funds in it listed and ranked and wanted to know why we didn't own the top one. And it, this wasn't the first time he'd done it and it was similar to other sort of problems and, and he clearly hadn't been listening to what we do and we didn't have other people suffering the same problem and we were very upfront. We said, look, we understand that you want the best for your portfolio and clearly we're not able to offer it. We were not rude in any way, we, we were not impolite. We simply said to him, Clay, we're not able to offer what you want. We will help you find somebody else, or you're welcome to go and find somebody else. There is no fee for leaving our service. 
we cannot continue to offer a service to you and we'll give you notice. Uh, like Simon, uh, it's very similar. I, I have fired some clients um, because of a philosophical uh, impasse. It's a, it really relates to their uh, the, our inability to, to be able to manage their expectations of us. And they've set the bar at a level that is just uh, impossible. Um, every year, we sit down as a staff and we look through our clientele and I actually solicit feedback from my staff because that's who's having most of the interaction with the clients, particularly the ones that are nasty or, or just demanding or being mean. And we call it pruning the hedges. I give them the authority, the ability to let me know whether we need to actually remove these people from the firm. And if we do, we simply send them a letter telling them that we have a philosophical difference. And like Simon said, we will help them to transfer it to an advisor that can, can deliver at the level of expectations that they have. I remember the first article MDRT ever asked me to write, it was, it was asking about what's your best sales idea, and I don't have sales ideas, so I thought about what am I going to write about. I said, well, the best thing that I ever did was fire five clients. And, and the way I described it was when the phone rings and you pick it up and your lifeblood is sucked out of you as soon as you hear the voice, <laughs> that shouldn't be a client. And I said, as soon as I said that, there's probably five clients in each of your mind that, oh, yeah, I know that person. And so I went through the discussion. And the, normally the reason they stay around is they had a large amount of assets. There was a, a revenue attachment to these people. And then I got rid of that one client, and then there was four more that hit my mind, so I made the objective to get rid of the next four. And it improved my business life immeasurably because I never had to talk to these people again. Our staff didn't have to talk to these people. So to, to make the decision, as we were talking earlier, about necessary endings, you don't have to put up with people that you shouldn't put up with, and, and it's not good for business practices. I think on that note, Greg and I are going to leave you to it. To play. All right, thank you for joining us. This will be the first episode of many, so if you have any questions, comments, good or bad, or topics you'd like us to cover, please drop us a line at podcast at mdrt.org. Special thanks to Clay, Simon, and Greg, and our producer, Stephen Saltarelli. I'm Scott Rogers. Thanks and have a good day.